So in preparation, I began thinking about how I could uh, maybe deliver to you some kind of an impactful statement at the beginning of a sermon. That's what preachers do, right? We have to come up with these clever introductions. So I thought, well, what I would do is I would describe to you in very vivid and dramatic terms the glorious nature of Jesus. But the more I thought about that, the more I tried to write things down to say to you in my own strength, in my own words, the more I was reminded of a, a line from an old hymn. And the hymn goes like this, though it's talking about the love of God. We're going to insert the glorious nature of Jesus here. But it says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stock on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade to write the love of God or fully describe the glorious nature of Jesus would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. So any attempt on my part, in my own strength, in my own words, to describe the glorious nature of Jesus would be wanting, to say the least. But we have a more sure word from the Lord himself, and it will help us to truly see the glory of who Jesus is. And it's found in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. So let's let's look at how the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to describe our Savior to us. And he does it in an economy of words that are unmatched by anything an uninspired person could ever attempt to declare to you. I'll begin in verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter. It says that when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, pressed against him as the idea And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they scorned him. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kume, which means little girl, little lamb, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. What an amazing testimony to Jesus's gracious and divine nature that we see here. Mark here is unequally unveiling to us a series of events that tell us about Jesus. And you can think of these events in this section and in this way. They're, they're as if there are three scenes of a play being displayed to us. It's a three-scene drama, a divine drama laid out in three distinct scenes. And we're going to look at two of those scenes today in verses 21 to 34. And I'm going to leave you in 34 with the same tension that Jairus felt at this interruption at this time. That's where we're going to end today. And I think that even the way in which this is written, this is intended to have an impactful effect on Jairus and us as well. So that is one other reason that we're going to stop there today. And you're going to think about this. You're going to put yourself not only with Jairus, but with this this woman who is an issue of blood. And you're going to see what Jesus is doing and see behind that the greatest glory of his nature that you could ever imagine being displayed in the way he cares for both Jairus and this dear woman. So let's look at the first scene. The first scene, as you can see there, begins in verse 21. It begins with Jesus returning back to Galilee from the other side of the sea. Remember, he was across the other side of the sea, the, the Gentile side, where, where he had just set basically legion free from a host of demons. And then immediately after setting him free from these demons, the people in that community, that their countrymen there, they immediately rejected Jesus' presence and they asked him to leave, and he did. But now in verse 21, he's back, he's back among the Jews. <laughs> and again, he shows up on the shore, and what happens? He is immediately mobbed the minute he arrives. You see that in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. He didn't make two steps out of the boat. And they're there. Now, maybe they were coming again like they we see them do over and over again. They're coming for the blessings. They're coming for the gifts. They're coming for all that he has to offer, not coming for him directly. But there are two. There are two in this crowd that do come to him directly for who he is. Yes. And they are blessed. But they come to him, the giver of blessings, not just to get a blessing. Now, in verse 22, what we see happening in this scene is we see all of a sudden the the entrance of Jairus, right? Amidst this mob, there is a, a man who is named. His name is Jairus, right? Look at verse 22 again. 
After he arrives, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now, we learn some things just by reading what his role was there in this area. He was a synagogue ruler. He's a synagogue ruler. They would have called him an elder. He was basically a a dignified man, a a man of high standing, a nobleman, if you will. And he was responsible as the synagogue ruler to supervise and arrange the various services and the scripture reading in the synagogues. And, And I think this is given to us to help us really have a contrast between him and the man we just left on the other side of the sea, the demoniac. Jesus cares for both the most radical sinner you could imagine and the most needy religious man you could imagine. He's caring for them both. But it tells us something about him when you read that he was a synagogue ruler. Basically, it's to help us see that he is a dignified pillar of the community. But when you read the account, you don't see him acting like one. He comes to Jesus, seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him. He begged him earnestly. At this moment, on this very day, in this circumstance, at this time, he doesn't look like a dignified man. He looks like a beggar coming to the Savior. And saints, that's a good place to be. For that's where we all are. We have nothing to bring him but our needs and our weakness and our lack of understanding. He is the one who fills us with what we need. So like a beggar, Jairus pushes through the crowd and he falls at Jesus's feet and he falls there in absolute fear for his child and desperation overcomes him. He comes to him in a situation that he has to come before the the savior and say, I can't fix it. I need help. I can't do this. It's beyond my ability. He's acknowledging his weakness and his inability when he falls before Jesus. And and listen, what he does, he's humbly coming to the Lord and he's saying, please act on my behalf. I can't do it. I can't save my daughter. Only you can. The only man that we've seen do that really in this vivid of a way before was the demoniac. Remember, across the sea, he comes to Jesus in terror and as a maniac and he falls at his feet because in the presence of the one who has all authority no one can stand the demons even had to bow through this man but Jairus is not like that man in one sense outwardly he's not the same he's not a demonized maniac he's a dignified man a stately man yet both of them find themselves bowing before the Lord in desperation That's a good position for us all to be in, not just in coming to the Lord for salvation, but throughout our sanctification. This is the way every sinner, though, must come to Jesus initially. They must come confessing their inability, confessing their need of his help. And this is the position that all Christians need to come in every day to rest in his help and to rest in his grace. We can bring our burdens to his feet And he will hear us and he will care for us and he'll provide exactly what we not what we want always, but what we need. Now, Jairus, unlike the demonized maniac 
is not used to groveling in the dirt. He's not used to falling down and looking like a crazed man, like a beggar. He's not accustomed to such a humiliating position as bowing in homage to Jesus and crying out his weakness. But on this day, in this time, at this place, he had no other choice but to look to Christ. And neither do we any day. On this day, his circumstances were beyond anything he could handle or control, and he had to confess it. And so he had no time to worry about his personal dignity anymore that day. He had no time to to consider that because he was a desperate and powerless man on that day, and he knew it. And so he throws himself down at Christ's feet and throws off his dignity and shoves his way to Christ and throws himself there like this beggar because he is a desperate sinner in need of the Savior. And so are we every day. Don't let that escape you. And in verse 23, we see this come to its really head. He says he implores him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This girl is at death's door. Now, she's officially a woman at this stage. After the 12th birthday, the next day, she's officially a woman. But not in dad's eyes. In dad's eyes, that's my little girl. That's my baby. And she's dying. She's not going to make it another hour. You've got to come, Jesus. Come and, and, and do what only you can do. Do what only you can do. Do what only I've heard you doing. Do alone what only you can do by your divine strength. Not not just humanly, but do something beyond reality. And what we're seeing here, church, is this is this is the plea of desperate and immature faith. Jairus is not fully informed about who Jesus is. He doesn't know everything to know about who Jesus is, but he knows enough that he can bring this impossible need to Jesus and he will hear him when he cries for help. Jairus, if you will, had a seedling faith and it's it is somewhat self motivating. It's driven by personal fear of loss, certainly. It's driven by an inability himself to stop this disease from ravaging his daughter. But yet in his desperation, God used that circumstance to drive a dignified man to his knees at the feet of Jesus to cry out for help and for mercy. So this is a a real cry of faith, though, though somewhat immature. It wasn't completely pure. And neither is ours. Listen, take heed lest you fall, right? If, if you think your faith is strong, wait till a trial like this shows up in your life. You will know how weak you really are. You'll cry out with the man in Mark who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's what Jairus is, is like. He's got that kind of faith. It, it may be a drossy kind of faith. You know, one that's not yet been purified by fire. But. It's about to be purified by fire. The impurities of his faith will be burned off very quickly by the fire of heartache that follows in chapter five, verse thirty five. It'll be burned off by this heartache and by the refining love of Christ's compassion. This is what Mark is doing for us. 
He's not simply talking about these temporal miracles that Jesus performs. He's talking about the miracle provider, the one himself who does this out of compassion for these weak sinners. He's talking about Jesus. He's elevating the glorious nature of Christ as we read this narrative. And so Jairus's desperate faith, like I said, was was not fully informed at this point. It wasn't fully mature, but it was truly genuine. And we know it was genuine because of the way that Jesus responds to it. There is no rebuke. Instead, what do we see in verse 24? We see Jesus's immediate response to his cry for help. I love this. Look at verse 24. And he went with him. There's no deliberation. There's no hold on, Jairus. Give me more of the story. Let me check my calendar. I'm not sure if I can make it there at this time. There's a lot of people here. I don't know if we can get through. No, he says he went with him. He didn't say a word from what we see in the text. He simply hears the plea, the cry for help, the desperation, the weakness of this man's faith. He just takes off. He sets his face toward Jairus's home and off he goes. Now, I hope, I hope, just by looking at this, you're starting to see the glorious nature of our loving Savior here. You don't have to come to him and give all of the reasons and all the details. And you don't have to manipulate your conversation with him in prayer to see him act on your behalf. You just got to come like a beggar saying, I can't do this. I need you, Jesus. Only you can provide what I need most. And he will act even without saying a word. Jesus saw Jairus's desperation and his his immature faith, and he responded with what looks to me like immediate compassion. He still responds to us like that when we cry out for help. When we cry out to him in faith, trusting that he alone can help, he will hear that cry. He'll provide exactly what we need, not always what we want, as I said. To provide what we need. This is a call to faith for us as we read these accounts. We look at this divine drama in these three scenes in particular. This is a, a call to us to trust him more. In whatever circumstances life brings your way. God is at work. He's ordaining it. He's bringing it to pass for your good and ultimately his glory. And that's what we see happening in Jairus' account here. Remember in in Jairus' case that this faith that he had wasn't in a vacuum. It wasn't just, you know, I wish I could believe this guy. He's 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 he looks like he's doing a lot of things. People are following him. No, his his faith was informed to some degree. His faith was informed to some degree. And we we know it must have been because Jesus is the author and the perfecter, the, the source of any true faith, any saving faith, any trust we have. And, and he, he is exercising some form of faith here that must have been originating from Jesus. You have to remember at the time, he had been a ruler in the synagogue, right? And, and faith, we know from scripture, God teaches us in the word that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And it was Christ himself who had been teaching in the very synagogues in which Jairus would rule and order. And so, so Jairus's seedling faith, though we don't see the full extent of what God's going to do at this point, the seedling faith, the seedling faith would eventually grow and mature 
through Jesus's very instructions that he's going to give him here in his moment of trial and through the actions that he performs in this divine interruption that's about to take place. Like I said, we have to wait till next time to get to what God does in maturing Jairus's faith. We have to go now in this divine drama to the next scene, which begins with, like I said, a divine interruption that was intended to be a blessing to Jairus, though he didn't see it or maybe even buy it at the moment. Don't separate yourself from the story at this point. What happens in this divine interruption as, as he's trekking home, as he's got Jesus' attention, he's going home, and all of a sudden this diseased woman steps up with a discharge of blood. Don't think to yourself for a moment that Jairus is saying, oh, this is wonderful, I can see the Savior do more and more to glorify his name and help this poor dear woman. That's not what Jairus is, is thinking. It wouldn't be what I'm thinking. When I read the text and I see this, this really this divine pause between verses 24 and 35 and what occurs in between, I'm thinking probably like Jairus. Jesus, this woman is a bother. She's been sick for 12 years. Can't she wait one more hour? My daughter is dying. Go home with me. Don't stop for this woman. That's what I said earlier, that Jairus' faith, probably like ours, is not fully matured. He didn't know that God works all things together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purposes. But we know that. And Jairus is soon going to learn that, even in this account. But first, we have to introduce the diseased woman. So look at verse 25. And there was a woman... Who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Verse 26 is a really interesting verse in the Greek text. It's meant to compile these these words together and her her dilemma to such a degree that you feel it exponentially growing through every word that he says. She suffered much under many physicians and spent all. So Mark is, is going to great lengths here in this divine interruption to describe this woman's personal condition. He's doing that, I think, partly to make us feel Jairus's tension, to feel like we're here with him in the moment. And he's also, I think, doing that to teach us more about Jesus' compassion for the needy. I think he's also saying, (laughs) he's also saying, look, like Jairus, you need to remember, when Jesus puts your request on hold, there's always a good and God-exalting purpose for it. Jairus didn't see it at the moment, but he would. Oh, he would. And so should we. But here we learn first off in verse 25 that this woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This was a a menstrual related issue. This was a serious illness in this day, not only physically, but you'll see emotionally and socially and religiously. 
But she had this issue, this discharge of blood. She bled constantly. It was it was for 12 years, 12 years. I've known people who have went through things like this for a long time, and I've seen the devastation that it it wreaks on their body. And the fatigue and the anemia and then the continued breaking down of the body's immune system even during all that. And I've seen this. This is serious. This is devastating. But what we see here by stating that it's 12 years is to, to give us something of the cumulative effect of, of the weightiness of what's going on with this woman's situation. This wasn't a temporary illness. She has suffered as long as Jairus's daughter has lived. 12 years. And this illness, like I said, went well beyond the physical trauma and pain that she suffered. This discharge of blood kept her in a constant state of ritual uncleanliness. Look at Leviticus 15, or I'll turn there and read it to you. We see that the law in the system at that time, what it said about a woman in such a condition and what she would be required to do and not do. Verse 19 of chapter 15, it says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. So understand, for 12 years... This discharge of blood kept her in a constant state of despair and loneliness and separation. Not even her husband, if she was married, could be with her. She was unable to have human contact. Twelve years. She was unable to draw near to God in worship. She was unclean. She's not only suffering physically, But she's suffering spiritually and mentally and socially. She is an outcast in this society. And she's cut off from God. She can't draw near to him until Jesus shows up. Ah, That's such good news for us. We're all outcasts. We're all like the leper. Unclean, unclean. But when Jesus embraces us, he makes the unclean clean. We can't defile him, but he will purify us from top to bottom, inside and out. Mark goes on to tell us in verse 26 more about her condition by simply saying on top of all this, this ostracism, all this despair, all this loneliness, on top of all that, she's been had. She's been taken advantage of. 
She has suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. All right. Just if you know anything about history, just consider what kind of treatments they would have offered her at this time. I've read many of these treatments. I read some of them are just flat out bizarre. They're weird. You scare the woman when she's holding a cup of wine. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But they range from the bizarre, oftentimes to the very cruel, very brutal. So instead of finding relief in her suffering from these treatments, they only caused more pain and eventually absolute poverty. Remember, she has no one to care for her. Whatever money she has begged and borrowed, she has now spent. No social system to care for her. She's all alone. And I think the intention of Mark here is in this passage is to, is to tell us this dear woman is literally she has literally exhausted every human effort possible and she could not find any relief in her own strength. Again, make us stop and think as you read that. Right. God, do this. This is exactly where we are when we come to God. We try in our own strength to come to him, to be pleasing to him, to cleanse ourselves. But we find at the end of the day, this is impossible. I am unclean. I've got to turn to Jesus to make me clean. I've got to turn to Jesus to heal my sin. That's ultimately what she does. At this time, she's, Mark tells us she's impoverished. She's suffering in pain. She's a social and religious outcast. And now now she's growing physically weaker as a result of the physicians. And what I think he's wanting us to feel right now is this woman is on the verge of death or suicide. She's done. She's got nowhere to go. No one will have her. No one touches her. No one cares about her. But in verse 27... We learn that she had heard the reports of Jesus. What glorious good news that must have been to her. That news must have created something hopeful within her. So in in desperation and weakness, she, she makes her way to Jesus in the crowd, even at her own risk, risking punishment for touching people as she tries to push through this thronging crowd. It's a crowd just shoving together. And she could be put to death for this if they wanted to. But she does whatever it takes to get to Jesus because the reports that she heard, they were good news reports. She was a Jew. She had Jewish upbringing. She had known the Old Testament stories. She had heard the prophecies of Isaiah. And now she's hearing one who sounds an awful lot like the one Isaiah 35, 5 to 6 talks about. The Messiah. The king has come and the kingdom is with him. This sounds like Jesus to her. It's very possible she was thinking that when she heard these reports. She may be thinking this could be the Messiah. I mean, obviously, he's healing the sick. This is what Isaiah 35 says. He's opening blind eyes. He's causing the lame to leap like a deer. We just saw that the paralytic was given new strength. And he even... He even went on to cleanse and embrace an outcast leper. This this could be the Messiah. I have hope. 
I'm hearing these reports. Faith comes from hearing. She heard these reports. Now, she's also informed by her society and her religious system. And though she's hearing the reports of Jesus, she doesn't know how personal this Savior truly is. She doesn't know if she could draw near to him or not. Like Jairus, fall at his feet. And so in verse 27b, it goes on to say that she came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his garment. What we see here, I think, is the appearance of desperate and weak faith. Desperate and weak. It's a weak act of faith. It's not the same as Jairus's. He comes and he throws himself down before Jesus, boldly saying, I need you. But she, no, she, informed by her situation and her culture and her disease, she comes up behind him in weakness, timidity. In verse 28, we learn what her intentions are, though, in it. She said within herself, is what Mark's telling us, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. I will be made well. He can make me well. Now, this is this idea of touching his garments is a little bit of a superstitious idea of the time. This is something that they they believed in. They believed you could touch a handkerchief or a garment and be healed from that. So she's she's not she doesn't have again. She doesn't have a fully informed faith. She has a weak faith. She has one conditioned by her understanding of the times. But yet she has still heard reports of Jesus and knew that that's where her hope must lie at this point. She's on the point of death. So it appears to me that she is convinced that he could do this. He could heal her. But here's what I think she questioned. Here's why I think she went up behind him anonymously. She knew he could heal her, but she didn't know if he'd be willing to accept her. He didn't know. She didn't know if he would accept one who is in an unclean state as this. And hear her cry for help. She didn't know. She wasn't convinced of that yet. No one else would hear her cry for help. No one else could care for her. No one else wanted to care for her. She's unclean. And she was conditioned, I think, to think that she was an unclean, unworthy sinner and not deserving of any blessings from God or his attention. So her weak faith, though, went on to move her. So she thought, okay, I can't approach. I don't know if he's willing to let me come before him publicly. So so I'm going to come and and I dare not approach him in a public open way, but I'll come to him and and I'll, I'll get as close as I can without without anyone knowing I'm trying to defile anyone. But then she is pleasingly surprised by what happens. I think something that I would learn here as I think about this and share this with someone else is. No, no sinner should ever be afraid of coming to Jesus because of their unworthiness or their past or their sins. Again, your defilement, your unclean state will be made whole and clean by coming to the Savior. I love Mark's account of the leper and the outcast. It says as he touches the, the leper... The text literally says he fully embraced him. He pulled him in. He pulled in this defilement and he made it clean. 
No sinner needs to be fearful of coming to Jesus in their sin. Her perspective about Jesus and her weak faith soon changed right after she touched the the garment. She reached out from a distance in faith and touched it. And verse 29 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. That's very heavy language from Mark. He's saying, instantly, done, right? The the flow of blood dried up and she felt, immediately felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Imagine, imagine the shock. Imagine the feelings of exhilaration. Blood starts to rush back to her cheeks. Her arms begin to feel strong again. Her legs are not weak. And she's, she's in, if you say it, say it like this, an ecstasy, if you will, in, in shock, in joy, right? She's, she's overwhelmed at this moment. Her defilement was immediately removed. Her body was renewed. Her hope now was restored just by touching his garment, by coming to Jesus. But then in that same instant, it seems like when you read the next verse, that she was overcome with shock and joy and probably exhilaration. It quickly turns to fear and trembling when she hears the voice of Jesus in verse 30. Immediately after she touches him. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Jesus isn't looking for information he didn't know. He is yet still human, though, truly human, truly God. And he can't see every individual perfectly when he looks across a crowd. So he's looking across the crowd because he knows who she is. He just got a spotter. She's made her way back. She's she's back in the corner someplace. There's, there's really no explanation either given for what it means that his power had gone out from him. But I think it's sufficient to say that Jesus is not merely a healing machine, right? That it just kind of leaks out of him occasionally, right? That people can just kind of like come up like a slot machine and get their healing. That's not what he's, he's not that way. He's not describing this that way. He is, he is rather the healer of those who draw near to him in faith. And he is the one who causes them to draw near. So this power went out intentionally by his design. And here's what we do see here in this. When he's looking for her, he's saying, you didn't have to do this anonymously. I'm going to, I'm going to acknowledge it openly. Where are you? Come here. Come here. He wouldn't let her walk away. He didn't let her leave. He didn't let her skulk out the back. He wanted to strengthen her weak faith. He wanted to restore her soul. And he wanted to do it publicly for her good and for his glory. So we move on to verses 31 and 32. <laughs> 31. I... I, I Man, these guys, I feel comfortable with these guys, right? The disciples really can't help but find Jesus' request here very odd. I mean, this, this crowd is literally pressing against him. And so he, he, but he goes on, you know, they say this. 
And his disciples said to him, verse 31, at this question, who touched my garments? You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I love, though, the next verse. He ignores them. Totally ignores them. He <laughs> just looks around to see who had done it. It's like, you guys are just foolish. I mean, you have no idea who you're dealing with here, right? He just goes right past them. He knew exactly who had done this. He knew who he was addressing when he says, who touched me? Come on. He knew it. He didn't see her do it, but he knew it. Look at verse 32. Again, it says he, he, he looks around to see who had done it. Now, verse 31, 33 says, but the woman knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Could you imagine the eyes of Jesus looking upon you and saying, come here? You can't resist. It's an irresistible call. You come because there is nothing more glorious than coming to Jesus when he calls. This is your savior. This is your healer, the one who's made you whole. And so he draws her irresistibly, if you will. He's not he's not asking for information. Where is she? I'm looking for. He's, he's drawing her irresistibly to himself because he's the one who drew her to hear the reports in the first place about who he was and what he was doing. So he draws her, though, in order to to really to complete her healing and to strengthen this weak faith. He draws her out so that he can make her joy and faith made full. That's why he draws her out. And he's going to do it openly, publicly. So in verse 33, she comes fearing and trembling and, and makes a full confession to Jesus. Now, there is a possibility that this fear and trembling is related to her social conditioning. She's afraid of a rebuke. Because she touched people in the crowd. She touched the Savior himself. But I don't think that's Mark's intention in the text. I think she comes fearing and trembling because she has encountered someone like she's never encountered before. I think her trembling here reflects the trembling of the disciples in the boat after Jesus calms the storm. When they said, who then is this? God is with us in this boat. And I think that's why she's full of fear and, if you will, respect, awe, and she's trembling. Who is this? She, like the disciples, had never encountered anyone like Jesus before. Not on this earth. The one that they encountered, the one that she encountered here, is the sovereign son of God who has ability to reign over nature, the supernatural, and disease itself, and ultimately death, as we'll see later with Jairus. But he's not only the sovereign son of God who reigns over all these things, he's also the compassionate one who hears a desperate cry for help from a sinner. When they cry to him in faith, he responds, however weak or deficient that faith may be. And that's good news for us, because we probably have more in common with this woman or with Jairus than any other person here in these stories. We have weak faith, we have immature faith. 
But he's compassionate enough to hear us even in our weakness and deficiencies. So like the disciples, this this dear woman comes to him trembling and fearful. And what does she find? Well, she finds in his words blessing and mercy and grace. Listen, if you come to Jesus confessing your need, this is what you're going to find, too. Blessings and mercy and grace. In verse 34, here's what she finds. What an amazing passage. We hear the, the words of our Savior, the words of hope and restoration here. He uses a very unique term. She's probably close to his age, but yet he calls her daughter. Daughter, this is an intimate, personal term. It's an affectionate term that a father uses of his child. Same term that Jairus used of his little girl. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus, in his all-powerful sovereignty, yet speaks tenderly to this, this frightened woman, this fearful, weak woman. And she's coming to him like a child. And he says, you are my child. You're my daughter. And he says this to her to strengthen her faith. And I think to quiet her fears. You don't have to be afraid of your father. You don't have to be afraid of God. You don't have to be afraid of God the Son, Jesus. So he strengthens her faith by telling her, look, here, I want to hear your confession. Now, understand, my, my robe didn't heal you. Your, your touch didn't bring healing to you. No, he says very clearly, it was your faith. It was your faith. Her faith, her trust in his testimony is what God blessed and healed her through. Remember, Mark said that she had heard the reports about Jesus. And again, faith comes from hearing. So she took what little she knew and she acted on it, even though she acted somewhat in ignorance, in weakness. Nonetheless, she moved out in faith toward Jesus. She believed in his testimony. There's no greater thing to trust in than Jesus' testimony. It is wholly true and pure. I think Mark's telling us that Jesus was certainly the substance of her faith. Though outwardly at first it looks kind of a superstitious kind of faith. It looks like a a faith that's informed by religious misunderstandings. But nonetheless, Jesus tells us very clearly here that it was her faith that caused her to risk everything to touch his robe, to come to him. And so then he assures her that though her faith was weak, it was real, but it's not yet made full. So he wants to do that. And that's what he does next. So in verse 34b, Jesus goes on to pronounce a full benediction over her publicly, removing all reproach that she suffered. He says, go in peace and be healed of your disease. You need to read that with Jewish eyes when you read this text. Church, he's saying, go forth in shalom. Go forth in the peace of God. In complete wholeness, not just physical bodily wholeness, but spiritual soul wholeness. Your life has been restored by your trust in 
me. Daughter, you've been healed both physically and spiritually by looking to me, by trusting in me. Your curse has been lifted. You have been made whole in my sight, in God's sight, and the peace of God is upon you. This is the word of Jesus. This word was assuring her that she was whole, made spiritually and physically whole, able to now commune with God. Jesus assured her of that and us by ultimately taking the very curse that she was under, taking ours as well at the cross. Paul writes in Corinthians that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what he's saying to this woman. I took in your sin and at the cross, he stamped it done. It is complete. He gave her a precursor of that there in those words of assurance. But now at this point in the text, as I kind of conclude here. In both scene one and scene two of this this divine drama, I think we we have something that we can learn that I think is critically important regarding faith here for us. As I look at these two accounts separately and then together, I think the first thing that I pick up on is that we can see clearly in this text that God will bless and perfect weak and immature faith. God will bless it by strengthening it, by making it whole. We have to understand that Jairus' desperate faith is what God used to bring him to Jesus and caused him to bow low in humility. So God uses desperation in our faith as well as maturity and boldness in our faith. Desperate faith is often what he uses to bring us, like Jairus, to the feet of Jesus in humility. And then Mark goes on, I think, to teach us with this woman that even when we are weak in faith, even a little superstitious, even some baggage from our past is still influencing our thoughts. We can still come to Jesus because he will, as he does with Jairus, burn off the dross. But he will hear us even in our weakness, even in our lack of understanding, even in our circumstances that we say, God, it makes no sense. Why'd you do it this way? Which is borderline blasphemy. But that's what we do at times. But he's saying. I can change that because I'm merciful. I'll hear you even in your weak faith, in your time of need. And I think one of the critical things we need to understand about the faith of these two people, individuals here, these two individuals in this text, is that they couldn't have done anything apart from God first working in them. Any faith they exercised had to be a gift from God here. Jesus blesses both, so we know they're genuine. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, no matter how weak and no matter how immature. He's the one who grants it to us. He's the one who perfects it in us. And I think Mark and the author of Hebrews also goes on to remind us in this narrative and in Hebrews that the reason God will perfect our faith and the reason he'll hear us when we cry out to him in our weakness is because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what Mark, I think, like the writer of Hebrews, is telling us in this narrative. We can look to Jesus no matter how weak, no matter how immature, no matter how confused our faith may be. If it's grounded in who he is and what he has accomplished, we can look to him and he will hear us in our time of need and he will act on behalf of his children. I think that's the point of this narrative to show us something about the nature of Jesus. He will strengthen our weak and desperate faith. But here's what you need to keep in mind. Look how he does it through these two individuals. He does it through the trials of life. And through the trials of life that we often find ourselves coming to him low and having to confess our neediness. But he will sanctify that just like he does with Jairus. He'll purge it from the dross that's surrounding it. I think the narrative here assures us that we can come to him, though, in every and all circumstances that we face in life. And he will hear our desperate cry and he will act on behalf of his children. That's what happens in these accounts. Now, understand, that's not a prosperity doctrine I'm teaching you there. It doesn't mean that he will grant us every temporal blessing we desire when we come to him. Doesn't mean that at all. Jairus' daughter eventually died again. The diseased woman eventually contracted another disease and died. But here's what, what I think we can take from this is God will always act when we cry out to him in faith. He'll act to give us what we need most in our time of need. Because our greatest need in life isn't temporal healing or immediate comfort. What he'll give us is our greatest need in life and eternity, and that's Jesus himself. So whether he delivers us from temporal sickness and despair or not, we are assured by Mark's narrative that Jesus will never turn us away in our time of need. And I think it goes on to assure us as we read this that Jesus even has a glorious purpose for our temporal despair and trials. Listen, his goal in our trials and our difficulties is to use them like he does with Jairus and like he does with this woman to use them to draw us near to himself. So that we will learn to know, love and trust him more and ultimately find in him our greatest comfort and treasure in life and throughout eternity. I think that's what Mark lends us to understand as we read this beautiful narrative about the nature of Jesus. Let's give thanks for that and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for you are the giver of all good things and you've granted us this divine blessing to be a part of this divine drama that we read about because we are like Jairus and this diseased woman. We are weak and we are immature in our faith and we need your strength, Jesus. We pray that as we come to you, we will find assurance from your word that you will hear us in our time of need and give us our greatest gift, which is yourself. 
your comfort, your blessing, your presence in the midst of trials, in the midst of discomfort and despair. We thank you for the eternal promises we have of a new life, a new body one day. But Lord, this body is is temporal. And to think that this is all there is and all we need is to have comfort and riches and blessings here. It'd be, it would be foolish and it would be idolatrous. Jesus, you are the ultimate goal. You are the ultimate desire for all those who draw near in faith. We pray that you would strengthen our faith and that you would use it to glorify your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.